From Nashville, Tennessee, it's the weekly Grace Church Nashville podcast. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at Grace Church Nash and use the hashtag located in the podcast description. And now here's Larry Day with this week's message. You know, sometimes revival brings with it um, things that aren't so sweet. Um, in fact, I was thinking of that driving in this morning. I was going, when I moved to Pensacola, me and Marilyn loaded up the truck and moved to nowhere. Um, and we got down there and we had been, we had a, been partners in a, a, a Christian music company up here for 12 years here in Nashville before we moved down. And we're starting something brand new, and we're excited about what the Lord's doing, and we're getting to be part of this phenomenal revival that's taking on historic dimensions. And uh, and uh, I get down there. One of my first questions: we had, we had started our corporation. We're a nonprofit organization, and so I, we had this table sitting in the back of the church, and we're selling CDs because um, our purpose was to was to support missions work. That's why our corporate name is Music Missions International. And so uh, so we're selling these. And I had this question. I go, you know, do we owe taxes on this? I don't know. You know, uh, never. So I called the Florida Department of Revenue. And I talked to three different people. I got three different answers. So I called our accountant. And he did the same thing. Talked to three different people. Got three different answers. So we weren't quite sure. So I called our attorney, and I said, would you go get us an opinion letter written, please, to tell us what we're supposed to do. We're, we're, we're collecting all the money we, we need to pay taxes. That's not it. We just need to know what to do, what files to form, how to do it, etc." So he went and talked to uh, some accounting firm, and uh, it's probably, probably a month goes by, and... So we haven't been down there in 60 days. And Cindy Hildreth, you know her from the, she's teaching your four and five-year-olds right now. Cindy Hildreth was working there too, so she's been there longer than me. But uh, she walks into to my office, she's got this uh, uh, fax. It's a fax from our attorney who had gotten the information from the accounting office. And they said, yes, you owe taxes. Um, <clears throat> here's how you pay them, blah, blah, blah. And we're going, Super. That's what we wanted. That's our opinion later. So about three minutes later, Cindy comes back in going, hey, uh, the Pensacola, Pensacola News Journal is on the phone for you. I was going, oh, wow, cool. They printed a bunch of positive things about the revival in the paper uh, in the previous year. So uh, I get the phone, and there's a guy on there who goes, I'm the managing editor of the Pensacola News Journal. Are you aware of your tax situation I'm going, I think I'm about as aware as you probably are aware from our confidential letter that evidently you're reading at the same time I'm reading, or maybe you got it before me. And then he wanted to come over and examine our books and do all kinds. It was very hostile. You know, it was a hostile conversation. Uh, We didn't let him come over, and he got even more hostile. And, And if you go online, even today, you'll see the headline that was in the, uh, one of the headlines, there were several, but one of the headlines in the Pensacola News Journal that Sunday was, Top Minister Fails to Pay Taxes. 
I explained to them exactly what I just explained to you. But my point is, you hit opposition. You know, we hit opposition personally. We've moved, we, we've quit our job. We sold our company. We've moved to Pensacola. We're starting this new thing. We're enjoying, and then boom, we're being accused of being tax evaders, you know, in the newspaper. Lundell Cooley is being besmirched, and my name is in there, and I'm being besmirched that we're doing something illegal and horrible. Uh, of course, then, then the entire church was being uh, attacked at the same time. In, in any revival in history, you, you read about it, and you, you read wonderful things the Lord is doing, and right along with it, you read of opposition and trials, and some of it is, is devastating stuff. But it happens. So as we pursue the Lord, just bank on it. Okay? And, you know, Lynette Habiger was here teaching a couple months ago. And she said something that I've been pondering. She said sometimes, um, this is what she was talking about saying yes to God. Basically, you might remember that. About being ready to go. And she pointed out that, you know, God has said yes to you. But then she kind of left a challenge, which was, have you said yes to God? And so I've pondered that. And in light of everything I just said, I'm, I want to address some of that because I thought it was a, a great question. And I begin to wonder, you know, what is it that holds us back from going after God? What, what is it that holds us back in our walk with God? What is it that makes some people go, a oh, revival, I'm headed the other direction? Uh, Part of the reason, I think, might be uh, because it has to do with hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you in the first place. And I don't think, or I think that many of us probably don't say yes because we're not sure that we're actually hearing anything. You know, or we're not confident that what we think we heard actually was from God, or we're flat out afraid that we did hear from God, but we don't want to do it because we're, we fear stuff. There's a fear fact. We, we fear failure or we feel success or we feel that we might have to make changes because of that. Or, you know, we can fear all kinds of things. Um, another thing that ha- can happen is we move in the direction that we, we uh, have said yes to, if you will. And we're moving to follow God. And we begin to move in the direction that we think we're supposed to go. And when we begin to move, bam, the Pensacola News Journal calls you. You know, you go face first into a brick wall. And we hit opposition and we hit pushback and we hit pains and we hit problems. And I'm not sure that I've ever met a person who's truly trying to go after Jesus who has not experienced something like this. And sometimes it's to the point, it's so rough, that we begin to wonder, you know, God, what incarnation are you doing? You know, I was so sure that I'm supposed to be doing this. I was so confident that I've, that uh, what I'm doing is the right direction, and I don't think you're anywhere near this, you know. You seem to have abandoned this. And worse than that, you seem to have abandoned me. 
So it's, it's like you're standing there and you're just holding the bag, you know, and you're disappointed and you're frustrated and maybe you're even doubting everything, including God. You may even regret that you said yes in the first place. So, with that happy prelude, um, my purpose this morning is actually twofold. And number one is I want to encourage you, okay? I do want to encourage you. And number two, I want to challenge you to have no regrets to saying yes, okay? So I don't want you to confuse opposition as a no from God, all right? Obstacles aren't necessarily God saying, no, don't do it. Now, hey, sometimes, yeah, God can shut a door, you know, and it's for your protection. He doesn't want you to go through it. But obstacles in and of themselves, um, a lot of times they show you that you're right where you're supposed to be. Um, and when that happens, what, what you need to do is press in even more. And what do you mean press in? I mean, don't give up. Don't give up. Have no regrets to saying yes. But you are going to be opposed. So just bank on it. Be ready for it. Prepare for it. We're going to be talking about it. And what's even more tricky, uh, I guess, is that God himself could be in the middle of the opposition. But know this. He's not opposing you. Okay? What he's doing is he's making sure that you're properly prepared to deal with the opposition. I don't think you believe that, but I'll say it again anyways. God isn't opposing you. He's making sure that you're properly prepared to deal with the opposition. So I want to give some hope that God is for you when you say yes, in spite of all the obstacles and suffering and stuff that happens in life with relationship issues, health issues, financial issues. The enemy comes at us six ways to Sunday, okay? Um, Now, you might be sitting here today and you're thinking, hey, Larry, not only have I experienced that, I'm I'm there. And the question is, how long can I keep doing this? How long can I keep treading water and getting nowhere? There was an experiment done years ago. This is in the 1950s, which that's a long time ago. I hate it now when I have to put my birth date in something. I'd scroll in for about 10 minutes trying to find the decade I was born in. <laughs> what the? Would they bury it? Is this 18, 1850s or what? <laughs> it's the 1950s, which was quite some time ago now. But there's a guy named John Richter at the... Uh, excuse me, Kurt Richter at John Hopkins University. And he did what is now a very famous um, drowning rat psychology experiment. And uh, it sounds lovely, doesn't it? And he would basically take your garden variety lab rat and he would observe how long the rat could swim before it gave up and drowned. Something to do in your spare time. You can do this at home if you like. Just... (laughs) For all you homeschoolers out there, just it's a good science experiment. <laughs> uh, 
what he observed was that if you would take a rat and kind of just toss it in a bucket of water, um, it would only be a few minutes before the rat just kind of gave out or gave up and drowned. And he, he thought that was pretty odd because the fact is that, that rats are excellent swimmers, but in the bucket, they just seem to kind of give up. But then he discovered that if he took them out of the water and he held the rat just before it's about to go under, he takes it out and he just holds it in his hand. He kind of lets it recover a little bit, you know, pets it, says soothing things to it. And you can do it. You can do it. Um, yeah. And then he, he wouldn't be just a few minutes. He would put the rat back in the water and what he would discover was when he put it back in the water, it could swim for more than 60 hours. Nothing else changed in the experiment except taking it out, giving it a little breather, you know, rubbing its little rat head, and then putting it back in there. So it begs the question, what was it that made the rat, who could only swim for a few minutes, just moments before, suddenly be able to swim for more than a hundred times longer? Well, this is what Kurt Richter concluded. Here's his notes. He said, the rat quickly learns that the situation is not actually hopeless. And after the elimination of hopelessness, the rats do not die. That's what I want to offer you, rats of God. (laughs) I want to offer you some hope that you're not going to drown. Okay. I want to offer you some hope that God will absolutely complete what he has begun in you. Okay? So we're going to read a little bit. We're going to read from the uh, book of Acts. This is the chapter 9. And this is, Luke has been describing the events around Saul's uh, conversion, Saul of Tarsus, his conversion. And he tells us how this persecutor of Christians is encountered by Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he's had this radical transformation in his life. And he says yes to Jesus. And we're going to start reading right after Saul has his sight restored and and he's baptized. So this is Acts chapter 9, starting in the second half of verse 18. It says, Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. And immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. They were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him, but Saul was told about their plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. So here we've got a guy, Saul. 
He said yes to Jesus. He said yes to God. He said, here am I, send me. And immediately he's opposed. He's chosen by God, you know, and still he's opposed. That's what Acts 9.15 said. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take the message to the Gentiles and kings as well as to the people of Israel. He's chosen by God himself to do this, and yet he's still opposed. And I really think that opposition is one of these big deals. Uh, It can be a big surprise for people who think that this Christian life is supposed to be primarily about living your best life now. Um, Saul got dumped in the celestial... uh, bucket of water like the rats, if you will. And like the rats, it seems like he's only going to be soiling for a few minutes before he's done. I mean, he's just getting started. Immediately, people reject him. They reject his message. They reject his motives. And they plot to murder him. So, yeah, he's opposed. And I think opposition is one of our biggest challenges in continuing to run the race and run it with joy and purpose and vision. We get all excited about what God's doing, you know, what God's doing somewhere and what God's doing in our life and what God's doing in revival and what God just, God just we, we can get all excited about some stuff and we think that other people are, are going to get all excited as well. Not so much. We're, we're just not prepared sometimes for the pushback and the bad attitudes and the hateful attitudes and confrontations that you sometimes get. We're not prepared for finding us ourselves being confronted by, by friends or being misunderstood by our family or being the uh, butt end of some kind of joke uh, at the water fountain at work. That's not what we're looking for. Now, Saul's assassination... Uh, plans or attempts were coming from his Jewish buddies, you know, they're in the, in the community. And sometimes for us, some of the most hurtful things that we experience as Christians comes from the, from the lips or from the actions of other Christians. So I'm just pointing out that even the church didn't have Saul's back. That's verse 26. It said, when Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers But they were all afraid of him. They didn't believe he had truly become a believer. They couldn't believe. And hey, frankly, I mean, let's call it, let's consider this a one-off. All right. You know, it's kind of understandable why they might be a little hesitant or a little skeptical um, about this particular individual because of what he was. But they didn't trust that he was truly a believer in Jesus. But he had been transformed. So what does transformed actually mean? Well, I can tell you one thing that it doesn't mean. Uh, transformation or to be transformed is, is not a superficial change, all right? We're so used to marketing, you know, here in the, the United States that we assume that almost anything is going to change our lives, you know? Your hand is resting in that 
dishwater, dish soap, you know, what's going to change your, your skin, you know, shampoo is going to change your life, you know, the new car is going to change your life, the smell is going to be glorious, and if it's not a product, then it's something else, you know, your, your new job is going to change your life, or the, winning the lotto is going to be everything you wanted for, and your hairstyle, your hair, your clothing choice, you know, whatever, it's going to transform you, those are the kind of words that we use, and it actually brings about, I think, a real question, which is, is it even possible to transform somebody? Can human behavior be transformed? Well, some folks would say, well, you know, Larry, uh, education, that's the key. Education can transform a person. So if we could just educate everybody, we could transform our society. We're going to get rid of crime. We're going to get rid of poverty. We're going to get rid of class distinctions. Everything's going to be wonderful. And so uh, we have educated people, uh, I think, to the extent that now what we have is a much smarter criminals and a bunch of psychotics with PhDs, you know. <laughs> Not you, Fabian, you know. You're, you're, yeah. We've tried transforming people from every angle and every extreme even. What do you mean extreme? Well, how about some shock treatment? That'll just, that'll just transform you. Uh, that'll wake you up in the morning. How about a lobotomy? That's what they used to do, right? Somebody's got some massive behavioral issues where it just goes, snip, we'll t- take that frontal lobe out, you know. That's extreme, I think, to try to transform behavior in a human. So we go, okay, that's too extreme. Let's just use the power of positive thinking. So we start becoming like that little children's book about the engine that could, you know, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. But mankind still remains the same as it has been since uh, the fall of the Garden of Eden. And you have hate and murder and lust and rape and violence and robbery and lying and psychological disease and physical ailments of every shape and kind. Nothing has changed. So what is it or what does it take to transform a person? And is it even possible? Well, I'll tell you, you know, what you probably already believe. Yeah, it's possible. The Bible describes it. But it's not superficial. Okay? Uh, Jeremiah 13.23 says this. Can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can a leopard take away its spots? Neither can you start doing good. For you have always done evil. Go Evil is so ingrained in the human nature that it's impossible to change. It's impossible. But the question that that Jeremiah asked was this. He said, can the Ethiopian change his skin? No. Answer is no. Can the leopard take away its spots? No. But you can guess the other question, which is, you know, Can the Ethiopian's skin be changed? Yes. Yes. Can the leopard's spots be changed? Yes. Can the sinful heart of man be changed? Yeah. 
Because God can do anything. Anything. And Paul was transformed by Jesus. He said this writing to Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He said, therefore, is if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, look, the changes don't necessarily come all at once. Okay? And they're not completed until we are resurrected on that day of glory, you know, and are completely changed. But nonetheless, our change here to say yes to Jesus is still real. And again, it's not superficial. Um, Our nature is changed. It's different. And only the power of God can do this through faith in Jesus. That's the only way this can happen. Mankind has to change, bottom line, and only Jesus can do it. The other bottom line. Now, we can read more writings of Paul, and this is many years after his own transformation took place. And and he's writing about how the transformation worked. So let me read this, Ephesians 2, um, verse 1. It said, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you. This is verse 8. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Now, I read that because, A, that's the gospel. But, B, that's the progression. Paul's talking about the the progression that we go through in our transformation. And it started, as you saw there, with death. Starts with darkness. Starts with sin. And it ends with being a new creation. Being created anew. And in the middle, you get the transformation. Right? And the transformation is the encounter with Jesus. That's what we need. An encounter with Jesus where we trust that he is who he said he is. And he will do what he said he will do. And we confess to him that we can't do it. And he transforms us. So Saul was transformed. There's absolutely no question that this guy was a horrible person pre-Jesus. I mean, he was cruel. He was hostile. If you didn't agree with his opinion, he might try to have you killed. Uh, that's pretty low life. But on the road to Damascus, something drastic occurred. And everything completely, absolutely changed. And to go, folks, Christianity isn't just something that you tag onto your normal life. 
going, well, you know, Larry, I used to be an embezzler. Now I'm a Christian embezzler. (laughs) Something wrong with that. No, it's not just something that you tag onto your life. Christianity is an an add-on to your life. It's a transformation of your life. I used to hear people say it sometimes like this. They go, oh, Larry, you know, Christianity is, is like, it's, it's like somebody putting on a new suit of clothes. No. Uh, it's like putting a new person in some clothes. No. Jesus isn't doing a repair job on you folks. He's doing a transformation on you. So... Saul was transformed, we're transformed, and as you know, Saul became Paul, right? Um, uh, And the transformation from Saul to Paul brought about it trials. It brought about opposition that we were talking about. So Paul's yes to God, just like our yes to God, had him swimming in that bucket of water like the rat, metaphorically speaking. And even though Paul is chosen by God. God took almost 20 years to prepare him. I'm not saying you have to wait 20 years. I'm just saying, you know. Here's what, well, here's what the Bible says. Acts 9.23 said, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Well, many days is a euphemism, I think. Uh, it was quite a few many days. It was more like three years. And we know that because in Galatians chapter 1, 15, it says, But even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I could pro- proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. When this happened, I didn't rush out to consult with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away to Arabia, and later I returned to the city of Damascus. Then... Three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days. The only other apostle I met at that time was James, the Lord's brother. Three years. Three years. He's transformed by Jesus, and then he heads into obscurity in in Arabia for three years before he even meets one apostle. What's he doing for three years well, the Bible doesn't really tell us specifically, but uh, we know he spent time with Jesus. Uh, he was instructed by the Holy Spirit. You've got a guy here, Paul, who was brilliant. He had the equivalent of uh, you know a couple of uh, master's degrees in theology. He studied with the greatest in, in the land. He's ahead of all of his peers. But he had to go back and take all that great learning and retool it. Kind of like those guys on the road to Emmaus when Jesus sees them on Resurrection Day and he goes and he starts in Genesis and goes through Malachi and he teaches them things that they've never seen before. Paul has to retool everything that he knows about Scripture, everything he knows about the Bible, everything he knows about the ceremonies and the law. It all gets retooled in light of this new revelation of this transformation and the reality of who Jesus actually is. So he said yes to God. He's immediately opposed, and then he's sidelined for three years. And he, I'm guessing he probably go, well, this is my new life. It's new, my new normal. You know, I sit in Arabia and uh, hang out with the Holy Spirit. After three years, he got to meet Pastor Peter in uh, Jerusalem, and then he left again, and this time for 14 years. 
Well, how do you know that, Larry? Well, that's the next verse in the next chapter. Galatians 2, verse 1 says, And 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas and Titus came along also. Well, what's he doing during all that time? It's now been 17 years, okay, since he's transformed uh, on on the road to Damascus. 17 years. Again, we don't, we don't know a bunch of specifics. Uh, he had some visions. God gave him some insights into his calling. Uh, we do know this. He was persecuted a lot because he writes about it in 2 Corinthians 11. It said five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. That reads really easy, but if you ponder that for us, you know, meditate on that verse a few, a few minutes. Five different times Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I've faced dangers in the cities and the deserts and on the seas. And I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long and during many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and I've often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. He needs a podcast. That's what he needs. (laughs) How to live your worst life now. Get shipwrecked, eat lunch, get beaten by rods. I'm just trying to point out a bit of the timeline here. He said yes to God. That happens in chapter 9 of Acts. Yes to God. Only four chapters later, you're in chapter 13, we read about Paul being sent out on his first missionary journey. And it reads like it's this, you know, instantaneous thing. You know, I I went to, uh, I got saved and then sent to the mission field. No. 17 years. 17 years between chapter 9 and chapter 13. 17 years of what? Preparation. Preparation. The Holy Spirit moved in here last week. And people responded. The Holy Spirit's moving around the country. The Holy Spirit's moving this morning. And you may say, yes, Lord. Here am I. Use me. Revive me. Set me on fire. And here's what you can expect when you pray that. You can expect to be opposed in whatever it is you're trying to do. And you can expect to be prepared that God will do exactly what needs to be done to get you to do that. And you're in good company, by the way. The Bible's full of these folks. We saw Paul's preparation timeline. Well, what about Moses? You know, he says yes to God. He's going to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. All that whole thing gets started by him spending 40 years tending sheep for his father-in-law, right? David. Anointed king, and immediately, where is he? He's back shoveling sheep poo out on the back 40s somewhere. And when he does get a place to finally go into the, into the palace, he's falsely accused and spends the next 10 years running for his life as the king's out to kill him. Joseph, he doesn't really know what he's doing, but he's going to be the savior of Israel. And he spends 20 years in slavery and in prison. 
So you got Moses doing 40 years of preparation, David doing 15 years of preparation, Joseph spent 20 years in preparation, Paul spent 17 years. And all I'm saying is that God is preparing you and don't expect to be fully prepared tomorrow. Now that doesn't mean you sit doing nothing. In the meantime, you start moving. You know, even Billy Graham has a famous quote, which I'm going to read to you. That if he could do everything over again, he wished he'd spent more time in preparation. Here's what he said. He said, although I have much to be grateful for as I look back over my life, I also have many regrets. I would do many things differently. For one thing, I would speak less and study more. I'd spend more time with my family. I would spend more time in spiritual nurture, seeking to grow closer to God so I could become more like Christ. I would spend more time in prayer, not just for myself, but for others. I'd spend more time studying the Bible and meditating on its truth, not only for sermon preparation, but to apply its message to my life. I would give more attention to fellowship with other Christians who could teach me and encourage me and even rebuke me when necessary. But about one thing, I have absolutely no regrets. And that is my commitment many years ago to accept God's calling to serve him as an evangelist of the gospel. No regrets to yes. Some regrets to not being prepared as well as he could. You want to know what one of God's primary tools of preparation is? You might have a guess and and you're not going to like it. But I'll read it anyways, um, because we've read it. This is Acts 9, 15. The Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. One of God's primary training tools and one of the words that most characterizes Paul's first 17 years of ministry is the word suffering. Can I encourage you this morning again that suffering and opposition doesn't mean something's wrong with you. Okay? And I can look around this congregation and I see faces who I know are, are suffering or you're in opposition. There's hard things you're walking through and it's, it's as wide as the spectrum of human beings what we're going through. You're trying to say yes to God and going, what is this opposition? What is this pain? with these Financial issues, physical issues, healing issues, relationship issues. Every issue known to man is probably represented in here. Again, suffering and opposition does not mean that there's something wrong with you. It means God is preparing you. God wanted Paul to become his vessel of power. So God took time to humble Paul. Right? We read Paul's writing and we read about his dependence upon God's power in his weakness. Now, where do you think he learned that? 
I'll tell you, it wasn't through his great triumphs and through his mighty successes, you know. He learned that kind of humility through suffering. A.W. Tozier has a quote that I almost don't dare read, but I'm going to read it anyways. It's breathtaking. He said this, It's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. It's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. You're going, ah, oh, Larry, that's not my God. Ponder it for a bit. You know, I think what he's saying is that God brings storms into our lives in order to carry out a deeper work that he's doing in our spirit, in our character. And these are like graduate level courses, okay? This ain't the, the entry level courses. This is graduate level courses in God's grace. They're hard. The graduate level courses are hard. They're so hard that you might ask yourself, do I regret coming to this school? I guess the ultimate question is, are you willing to take the test? God tests us, folks. He does. And he's bringing you through these tests that you're in that don't feel good to prepare you for greater use in the kingdom. But you have to pass the test First, the Bible talks about, you know, that it's in our testing that, that we're purified. How it talks about how the dross and the, the imperfections rise to the surface to be removed, that the refiner's fire makes all that garbage bubble to the top, get boiled away and skimmed off. God is less concerned about what we do then about who we become. So what God is doing in you right now is just as significant as what he's going to do through you later. It doesn't feel like it. Well, so what? It's true. What God is doing in you right now is just as significant as what he's going to do through you later. A lot of times we're just like the rats in the bucket, you know, and we can, we could tread water a lot longer if, and we might be willing to suffer a lot longer if God would just explain the stinking reason for us, right? And then a lot of times we just get pin drop silent. We don't get an explanation. It just lights out. So we try to approach it like it's a, it's a contract. This, this transformation, it's really a contract. You know, I, Larry, agree to suffer humiliation, degradation, confusion, light momentary affliction with a special emphasis on the light and momentary part. <laughs> only under the following terms and conditions that you, God, will provide in advance and in writing a full, reasonable, and sufficient explanation into what the heck are you doing and why are you doing it and how long is it going to last? 
That's what I do. That's what I want. I could swim a lot longer if I know what I'm doing. I'm the rat. <laughs> well, guess what? He didn't give any explanation to Job. He just dressed him down for about 75 verses. Stand up and brace yourself like a man. Here it comes. You know. Sometimes we have to learn to trust him. Trust him. You've probably heard this one. This, it's not a joke. Kind of humorous, I guess, but a, it's a story. It's made the rounds years ago. I'm a little late, to, but I've always liked this story. Have you heard the, the one about the little bird? No? Well, there's this little bird, and he's, he's headed south for the winter. He's a migratory bird. He's got to get out of there before winter comes, but he got a late start. So trouble brewing because there's this big snowstorm coming along, and he gets caught in this snowstorm and ice and you know it's like an airplane you can't have icing on those wings and he starts losing lift and before you know it he can't even fly and he's he's going down he's you know headed in he picks a field to crash in and he crashes down for a crash landing in a cow pasture and he's sitting there going this is this it's just great wings frozen up it's blizzard going on now now i'm just going to freeze to death you know um and right then, a cow walks up and, uh, you know, plops a great big pile of stink on him. <laughs> We're talking manure, folks. I grew up in a dairy farm. I could have chosen less uh, artsy words there. <laughs> manure. And the little bird is now absolutely freaked out. He's going, oh, come on. You know, a cow just pooed on me. I crash landed in a field. Can things get any worse? Then he began to notice that the uh, cow manure was kind of warm. It's warming his wings. And he realizes what's going on and he gets all happy. This is glorious. This cow stink, it's wonderful. And he begins to sing and he begins to chirp and tweet because that's what little happy little birds do, right? He's very happy. And all this chirping attracts a cat. And the cat came and ate him. The end. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> oh. I, actually, I didn't say it was a great story. I said it was making the rounds. Uh, but, uh, uh, going, what's that about? Well, here's, there's some lessons we can learn from the story. Lesson number one. Not everyone who drops manure on you is your enemy. Think about it. Lesson number two. Not everyone who digs you out is your friend. Lesson number three. When you're in manure, sometimes it's helpful to just keep your little chirper shut and wait it out because God might just be trying to do something in there. I'm convinced that one of the most important spiritual truths we can learn is that your strength can be far more dangerous than your weaknesses. Uh, it's, it's your strength that keeps you from relying on God. Um, the strong don't really need anybody. 
The strong don't need faith. The strong don't need other people in the church, you know, to lean on and to help them. They just go, Larry, I'm, I'm good. I'm good, Larry. I got it covered. I know my way to salvation. I'm doing an incredible job for Jesus. Heaven is my oyster. You know, I'm, I'm going to be a standout person when I get there, probably. Um, I got it all planned out. But the problem is, you know, our plans aren't usually God's plans for us. Um, the cross of Jesus will always change your plans. Okay? The transformation will always make a mess of your schedule. If you want the benefits of the cross, you have to be willing to bow to the lordship of Jesus. Because Jesus has a plan for you. And his plan may require that you stand under a pile of manure. And his plan for you might actually feel like opposition against you. But it's not opposition. It's preparation. So let me try to sum this up. We got Saul. He's on the road to, to Damascus. The Shekinah glory of God has, has hit him. It's it's brighter than the noonday sun. He falls to the ground. He hears a voice speaking to him in Hebrew, going, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The Bible has less than 20 times where somebody's name is spoken like that in that kind of uh, double repetition. You got God crying out to Moses, 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 take off your sandals. Or you've got uh, the angel, Abraham, Abraham, put down that knife. You've got uh, David weeping over the loss of his son. He's going, Absalom, my son, Absalom, my son, my son. Even Jesus on the cross, he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every time that happens, that double repetition of a name, it's always an expression of a profound personal intimacy. That's why Jesus points out there at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where there's people coming up to him and say, many people in the last days will come and say, Lord, Lord. Their hypocrisy is bad enough, but it's made even worse because they're using this double repetition. They're claiming to have a great personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. They're not claiming some kind of casual relationship with Jesus. It's, I know him, I know him well, I've been changed, he, we are close, close, and Jesus is just going, uh, get away from me. I never knew you. He didn't say, I used to know you. You know, we used to be clo- close. I, you, I used to be Lord, Lord, until you started deconstructing and rebelling against me. He just said, Now, you can try to fake that intimacy with me if you want to, but I never knew you. Get away from me. With Paul on the road to Damascus, or Saul at the time, the Hebrew voice is coming out, and it's identifying himself as Jesus, and he's going, Saul, Saul, this is intimate. I know you. I know everything about you. I know you intimately. Saul, I love you. But why are you persecuting me? We have all heard this teaching. He didn't say, 
Why are you persecuting my church? He's going, why are you persecuting me? Because anybody who attacks the body of Christ is attacking Jesus. You can't attack his bride and not attack him. And it also means that you are not alone. You know, your yes to God is backed up by God himself. Okay? Paul said yes to the Lord. He said yes to being baptized. He said yes, send me to the, to the wilderness of Arabia and teach me. He said yes, I'll learn how to make tents so I can support myself. Yes, I'll go over the city wall in a basket. We don't always have to perfectly understand what we're doing. Paul said yes, I'll go. And the Holy Spirit said okay, go, but don't go to Asia. Paul says, okay, I won't go there. Let's go to Bithynia. No, don't go there either. Again, we don't always know exactly what it is we're supposed to do, but we say yes, and we're available, and we're willing, and we're trying, and we're moving. Don't go to Bithynia. Okay, where do I go? Holy Spirit goes, well, I'm thinking maybe Europe. Go to Macedonia. Paul says, okay, yes, I'll go to Macedonia. And they go to Macedonia, They are immediately beaten with rods, falsely accused, thrown in jail, and they sing the walls down, right? Yes leads to opposition. Opposition leads to preparation. Preparation leads to more opportunities to say yes, and then it starts all over. Because that yes will lead to opposition, which will lead to preparation, which will lead to more opportunities to say yes. Your yes could be almost anything on any given day. Yes, God, I'll start that podcast. Or yes, God, I'll go back to school and complete some education. Yes, God, I'll get my finances in order. Yes, God, I'll, I'll launch that business. Yes, God, I'll volunteer at my church or I'll be a helper at my kids' elementary school. Yes, I'm going to reach out to my neighbor. Yes, I'm going to get a prayer life together. Yes, I want to go after God. Any of those yeses could have opposition. But so what? You haven't missed God. And you're right on time. You're not too old, saints of God. Anyone who's older than me is old. You're not too old. You're not too old. You're not too weak. Okay? Now, I said at the start that I'm not sure that I've ever really met a person who's trying to follow Jesus, who's not had this frustration of, of saying yes and getting opposed to the, to the point where they're kind of questioning, God, what are you doing? You don't have to be anywhere near this. And I frankly, it doesn't feel like you're anywhere near me. Have you abandoned me? Well, what's Paul's final word on that question for you? Let me read. This is towards the end of his life. It's been 30 years since this transformation occurred on the road to Damascus. And the process began of preparation. 30 years later, he says this in 2 Timothy 1.12. I'm going to read it from two different translations. first one's the message says, this is the message I've been set apart to proclaim as preacher, emissary, and teacher. It's also the cause of all this trouble I'm in. But I have 
No regrets. Say no regrets. No regrets. I have no regrets. I couldn't be more sure of my ground. The one I've trusted in can take care of what he's trusted me to do right to the end. The Amplified Version says it this way. This is why I suffer as I do. Still, I'm not ashamed. For I know him and I'm personally acquainted with him who I have believed with absolute trust and confidence in him and in the truth of his deity. And I am persuaded. That means I have no regrets beyond any doubt that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day when I stand before him. So this morning, if you feel like you're the rat treading water, like you're not getting anywhere like it would be just so easy to throw in the towel and give up let this word of god encourage you this morning he's got you you are not going to sink the opposition is not going to crush you what it's going to do it's going to prepare you and strengthen you to accomplish what god has for you and have no regrets to saying yes. Read that scripture Paul just said. I am persuaded that he is able. I couldn't be more sure of my ground. The one I've trusted in can take care of what he's trusted me to do right to the end. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace Church, you can visit us online at gracechurchnashville.com and find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash gracechurchnash. Hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time.